missing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. La, la, la. That was a good one. I like the energy coming in at the end, Jason. Yeah. It's a, it's a Seinfeld day for me. That's right. <laughs> After nearly two years and 42 episodes, we're bringing season three to a close. Not before we calm a little more sigh, so tonight we're talking about Alpha Fold's Bumble, Soft Robots in Our Skulls, A Solar Selfie, and The Downfall of Democracy. You know, just some light topics before we get into summer, so let's get to it. Way back in the first episode of the relaunch era, Former co-host Chris Goulet told us about the hot new AI-driven bioinformatic program AlphaFold 2. Let's roll the clip. Now what AlphaFold 2 has done, which is so revolutionary, is it has run this model over and over and over again and concocted a mapping of the known proteome that gives a much higher degree of predictability as to the accuracy of these guesses and these structure foldings than ever before. It's not to say that they have perfectly mapped how proteins are going to act forever and ever amen. That's not really the the cool thing here. But what they've done is created a system by which the most important and prevalent protein structures that you're going to find in living organisms are mapped with a much, much higher degree of certainty as to their accuracy than ever before. And that's really cool because what that means is going forward, it's going to make it much easier and faster for researchers to go through this process when they're trying to create a new drug or therapy. And it's going to make the development process for these new techniques and products much, much faster and much, much better. The key thing to remember from that initial reporting is that this was never meant to be perfect and it was never meant to do more than predict protein folding based on sequences of amino acids. However, those pesky fans of AI quickly hailed this as something that would usher in the Jetsons-like future that we've been promised for decades. But fast forward to a project done by high school students playing around with the open version of AlphaFold, making a shocking discovery. It does exactly what it was designed to do and had difficulty doing more. In fact, the addition of a single mutation to the protein significantly decreased the accuracy of its predictions. Now, I chose this story for two reasons. Obviously, it throws back to the first episode of the season, and who doesn't like a good bookend? It also picks up on one of the themes that came up in the past 42 episodes. AI is cool, but it can't do everything. So what do we think about AlphaFold's fumble? I thought this was really interesting for a couple of reasons. The first thing I want to say is I'm not surprised, right? I'm not surprised that it was unable to do something that it wasn't designed to do. Right. And 
I don't know why anybody would be surprised at that. It wasn't designed for that. But I was a little taken aback by the fact that this software, this AI that was hailed as bringing an end to bioinformatics as a discipline, wasn't actually refuted mm-hmm. by bioinformaticians. Is that what you would call them? Bioinformagicians, I think, was more fun. Magician. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nobody knows what they're doing anyway. Right. It was not tested by, you know, bioinformatics practitioners. Instead, it was done by high schoolers. And I thought that that, right, right signified maybe the end of the fight in the bioinformatics <laughs> group. Um, not so much that they thought the discipline was done, but uh, but that they just didn't have it in them to show that it didn't, that it wasn't. Um, so I thought that was interesting. You know, high schoolers are what are what took this down, this idea down. But again, no one should be surprised that an AI that wasn't designed to accomplish a particular task can't accomplish that task. Because we're not talking about artificial intelligence like we see in sci-fi movies at this point, where it's learning information and taking it all in and synthesizing information so that it can make predictions outside or extend its knowledge base outside of its immediate task. We're not talking about that. We're talking about whether or not something that has memorized all the structures of proteins can predict which way a protein will fold when it's given a series of amino acids. That's cool. That saves a whole lot of time for scientists, but it doesn't allow bioinformatics to be closed as a discipline because we still need people to make these predictions that are outside of the direct application of this software. Yeah, and not just any people, because like sometimes I see people get a code that'll produce an output without an error, right? Doesn't mean it's giving you good data out or good information out. So it really speaks to having that knowledge or that information to actually interpret the results of these codes. And then like we all said, it, it's dependent on your data set. I do love how um, high schoolers did this because they're probably thinking outside of the box about how you would run this, right? Having more people run codes can kind of elevate these things that will come out naturally. This is happening in real time a lot, right? So we're learning, we're getting a deeper understanding. We have these models, but you really need to test them a lot. And so I I just think this is fascinating. I think the other thing that this underscores is that protein folding is complicated. And we knew that already. That's not something that's like a major news story here. You know, biochemistry is not an easy discipline to understand. Protein folding is very complicated. Single point mutations are the easiest mutations to come by, and they happen all the time during genetic assembly, right? So, you know, sometimes you get a base substitution accidentally in the strand of DNA, and suddenly you've got a new protein that's being encoded for, and that's going to change the way that the, or a new amino acid, rather, that it's coding for, and that's going to affect how that protein folds. The fact that computers couldn't figure out how a protein would fold, like that an AI couldn't figure out how a protein would fold with a single point mutation underscores the complexity of evolution because most of evolution works on single point mutations. They accumulate, but those single point mutations are the things that drive the variation that evolution, that the forces of evolution work upon. And so to me, this just underscored how complicated evolution is and that maybe it's not surprising that the general public has a hard time understanding it. 
I think the story also is very good at illustrating what AI is because it's just like it's become a marketing term at this point. But it's showing you like if you're not going to put in what single point mutations are, the AI is just not going to come up with that. If you're not training it to to at least like understand what that is, it's just it's it's going to fall apart immediately. And it also really made me want to start watching the X-Men again, right? <laughs> like all of this talk about genetic mutation and drift. I just need to see Wolverine just taking care of some bad guys, right? That seems reasonable. Um, this, you know, to me, the AI sounded a lot like the unsuccessful graduate students versus successful graduate students in my gross anatomy courses. Um, because they, the successful students are not the ones that memorize all the information and spit it back out. They're the ones who can make reasonable predictions and, and um, reason out the answer to a, a question based on everything they know and apply that, you know, knowledge in a different domain. And so, you know, the way that I test them is in a clinical way. Um, you know, how are clinical students tested? Well, a patient presents with a particular set of symptoms and they have to diagnose what's going on. Just memorizing anatomy is not going to help that. Um, but understanding the anatomy and how it all relates together will allow you to reason out an answer and apply that knowledge in a new context, right? So the AI here is like the unsuccessful graduate students who are unable to take that information and extend it to a different domain. I think it really depends on the application too. Because there's sometimes you can use like machine learning AI to look at large data sets. I mean, we've talked about this before and look for patterns that can kind of give you understanding at a faster pace. And so, yeah, it's how do you apply it and what is your data going in? Right. And maybe we shouldn't like put AlphaFold 2 on blast too much because it does do what it was designed to do pretty well. And it probably saves a lot of time for people who are looking at the basic folding of protein structures based on amino acids. Right. So like the people that use it for the thing it was designed to do seem to seem to like it. It's the people that say it's the cure-all and the end of bioinformatics that maybe maybe uh, we need to target. And I think this story, it, it really illustrates two things. One is like the high schoolers are probably going to be okay, right? We just got to we just gotta keep them on the rails and it'll be fine. And then maybe also like maybe people from bioinformatics need to watch the end of that Rocky Balboa one where he's just giving us on a pep talk. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward, how much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits. Don't go quietly into that good night, bioinformagicians. We need a new t-shirt. Yeah. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Even more niche than the cones. Bioinfomagic. Yes. Yeah. Speaking of themes from season three, a team from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology created a soft robot that can be inserted into a small hole in the skull deploy its six legs to cover a diameter of four centimeters and place electrodes on the brain surface for monitoring. So how are you feeling, Steffi? So I just looked at the title that you put in Discord and then my brain started itching. Like, like <laughs> And then I was like having nightmares. I mean, just look at the, the title, the subtitle. 
Robot injected in the skull spreads its tentacles to monitor the brain. Fascinating. Right. Also, sounds super creepy. Super creepy. You know, we've seen a lot of of pop pop sci reporting right. of articles that the article, like the the headline and the article, are just not the same. But this <laughs> one is pretty accurate. <laughs> oh, for sure. This was. I have to say. Creepiness aside, this was, I think, the coolest story we have read in all three seasons of Science Night. And that's because uh, this is just an amazing, amazing robot, right? I mean, first of all, it's all hydraulic, right? Mm -hmm. And so it operates like like the trunk of an elephant, right? Like there's no hard structures in here. It's all soft tissue-ish like structures that are inflating, right? So it's got this... uh, it's a silicone tentacle that is folded up on itself like a like a sock, right? If you're uh, folding your socks and you fold part of it down, and then it fills with liquid to extend. That's nuts, first of all. Right. Um, and then those those tentacles are all filled with sensors. Exactly. So then you've got these these tentacles filled with sensors. Um, and the idea that this could be inserted through a very small hole in the skull and cover a really large surface area of the brain is transformative for monitoring brain activity. And so, you know, I think back to my time in, in grad school and I knew someone who who underwent deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease. And that deep brain stimulation where they put electrodes deep into the brainstem and then stimulate, set this person's symptoms back close to a decade. Wow. It was amazing, but it was a one-time thing and it's been well over a decade. And I don't think it lasts that long, right? The relief that one gets from that doesn't last that long. Imagine a situation where you could have a relatively non-invasive, comparatively non-invasive set of electrodes put onto the surface of your brain to measure activity. And, And it's not just about measuring activity. It could also stimulate the brain if there's not enough activity or the wrong kind of activity. I just can't imagine how the quality of life for people who suffer from diseases like Parkinson's or um, epilepsy, which is how that's going to change their lives. This is the neatest story we've covered. You really want to lean into the creep factor of it uh, and think about all the things that could come, like Matrix plugging in type stuff and, I don't know, probably something from A Clockwork Orange. I don't remember that movie that well, but it seems like something that they would have in that. But then you think about all of the benefits that it has, and it's like, maybe we don't want to, maybe we don't want to lean people down that road too much. Yeah. That's right. I just imagine this thing extending its tentacles, and then oh, man. the individual hears in their ear, right, through bone conduction, where yeah. are your oh. droogs? Whoa. Find your droogs. Just wait until those tentacles get longer, and it's just kind of enveloping the entire brain, so now we can affect, like executive function and motor function all at the same time and then you can actually take the person over and use them like a puppet oh i've gone i've gone off the rails again the imagery sounds a whole lot like uh the upside down in stranger things though doesn't it 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 also kind of sounds like the hit pulp story dirty deggy starring james reed as the narrator and 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 guest appearance by dr steffi deem as oh yeah waitress i think i think i was yeah. yeah. Well, now I feel a little left out. Well, you think you were busy that day. I don't know. I don't know, Jason. <laughs> you could have played Guy from Maine. <laughs> I had to be coached a lot for that like five-second clip. So It's true. We took like 15 takes. I know. It was my first time doing voice work, though. 
I haven't been asked back. So just throwing that out there. <laughs> to be fair, there hasn't been another episode yet. Okay. Uh, one thing you that killed I, it, Steph. You I killed know. it. <laughs> or they peaked. You know, you can look yep. at it one of those ways. Put it in a rafter, <laughs> shut it down. Right. A little um, from column A, a little from column B. I mean, I found this article fascinating that it was just, I was so drawn in by the creepiness. And then... The potential was amazing here. Not just like it's not very invasive for monitoring, but when the task is complete, you can just deflate those little robot legs. And so you can easily pull it out by a surgeon, too. Well, and that's the thing about the skull. Like, the bigger the hole, the worse the long-term effects can be. I mean, we all learned from the documentary The Adventures of Pete and Pete that if you have a metal plate in your head, there's going to be issues. You're going to get, like, Soviet radio... Uh, coming in over your transistors, you're going to get stopped at TSA. Like, that mom had had some things going on. And I feel like neither of you know what the adventures of Pete and no, Pete are. I... The screaming into the void. But it's no, fine. No, I've, it's fine. I've seen the adventures of Pete and Pete. You I nailed not. it all. <laughs> well, I think, I think me showing the fact that Steffi watched PBS and, like, sculpted her young mind and became a fusion scientist is a signal that... Maybe it's time to take a break. Now I just watch garbage, though. <laughs> so you've come you got to make circle. up for lost time, right? Right. Yeah, I, I'm not going to say speaking of garbage because I don't think this ad is garbage. I think it is a message from a podcast that you will enjoy. Hi, friends. Cameron here. I host a bi-weekly podcast called Nature is Gay that explores themes of sex and sexuality and gender expression across the natural world. We talk about pseudocopulation and sociosexual behaviors, asexual reproduction in plants and animals and fungi and every little thing in between. It's a great time. I'm a little biased, but I think you should check it out. That's Nature is Gay. Available wherever you get podcasts. No way we could say goodbye to season three without talking about fusion in some way. Good thing the Daniel K. Inouye Solar Telescope recently released some pretty amazing images of plasma moving through the sun's atmosphere. And besides looking pretty incredible, they could teach us more about solar flares, a.k.a. the bane of Starlink satellites everywhere. So, Steffi, now's the time where you get to tell us about everyone's favorite, well, your favorite state of matter. It is everyone's state of matter. Let's just be honest, because we wouldn't exist yeah. without it. Well, okay? it, you know, if, if fusion works. If fusion it could, works. It could do so. <laughs> it does. It works every day in the sun, which is why we see sunspots. Big if true. <laughs> so I don't know if you've seen the uh, images coming from this this solar telescope. They are fascinating. Have you seen them? Silence. Yeah, I, I have, yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Sorry. Okay. Were you talking to us? <laughs> yes. I was. She was she was waiting for emails to come in. <laughs> right. I'm waiting. <laughs> Hit me up on Twitter if you've seen them. 
Anyway. I honestly think they almost look like a Van Gogh painted plasma. That's what I was going to ask you what it looked like uh-huh. to you. I, that. It looked like that. Van Gogh painted a plasma. Okay. Yes, I would agree. But the uh, the like real close-up image, yeah. right, to me looked like melted candy corn. Yes. Oh, I actually really love that analogy. Yeah. That's nice. I'm going to go melt some candy corn so I can see it as a reference. There's nothing else worth doing with it. To me, it kind of looks like kind of like popcorn, too. So you can see like yes. these different oh, sure. um, regions yeah, yeah, yeah. of dark and light um, orange. Mm-hmm. So what you're seeing is little convective cells coming out and shooting up like plasma from like the interior to the to the edge and as it comes out or to the surface and as it comes out it kind of cools around so that's why you have that variation in color in the surface of the sun um and sunspots you'll see a really dark region this dark region the sunspot is cooler than the surrounding plasma because it has a high concentration of magnetic field in there. So it's kind of stopping that convection from deep inside. So it's actually darker there. But what's amazing is the size of these sunspots are like the size of the Earth. They're massive. Right. Actually, to that point, Steph, yeah. right? when you said cells, you called them convection cells. Yeah. Right. right? <laughs> and you look at them through a telescope. Yeah. Right. I look at cells through a microscope all the time that are, you know, microns wide these convection cells are like almost Huge. a thousand miles wide right <laughs> yeah yeah crazy to think about okay sorry <laughs> no that's okay um, how many i think we need to put it in perspective and like how many jaws what how many jaws is is that how many how many the shark from jaws wide is that i'm I, gonna say like maybe 1500 i think shark week is next week so that is a great oh we're we're jumping comparison. the shark week you are. And I know next week is Shark Week because I was wearing a shark dress yesterday and someone told me that I must have been pre-celebrating for Shark Week. Of course shark I was. Week. Sounds like we need a Fonz reference in here somewhere, <laughs> right? right? Hey. I mean, I think I just did it, didn't I? Yeah. You did. You said jump in the Shark Week. You did. Mm-hmm. So that's what you're actually seeing. Um, these are really, really <laughs> fine details. Not sharks. I'm sorry. I'm going back to sunspots. <laughs> I am not editing a second around that. It is going in as a just so you don't continue. My brain plasma. can just keep going on some wavelength when something's way out there. Okay. <laughs> so switching to sunspots. Um I'm sorry. No, you don't have to apologize at all. <laughs> this is amazing. Okay. So this telescope is actually giving us these super fine details that we haven't been able to see before. I mean, normally it's just kind of like a wavy color shades. This is very detailed imagery, and it's one of the first-gen instruments from this telescope built in 2020, and so they're still commissioning some of them. So this instrument looks at visible broadband images. So you're filtering light to see these fine details. You're not seeing the whole visible spectrum like we see in our normal cameras or with our eyes. It's very detailed or a very small wavelength window. So you can actually see, you know, it's a certain color range. And so that's what's pretty amazing. We can actually see these fine details because we don't actually know all the physics that causes them. So any kind of more information we can get gives us a deeper understanding because we're still trying to figure out what's causing these visible manifestations of those magnetic flux tubes in those regions. So I thought it was amazing. So how does that translate to your tokamak? 
knowing how magnets can 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 help plasma stay in a place. I'm sure there's no one-to-one translation or anything like that, right? I love how you point that out because sunspots can erupt to solar flares, which I think I've talked about this before, where you get this breaking of magnetic field lines that converts that magnetic energy to kinetic energy to shoot um, energetic particles out. And that's kind of how we start our tokamak. So there is a correlation. See how I did that? Look at that. Well yeah, that was good. See? It was. Bump set spike. It no, was. So no, yeah. nice. I, uh, so I have to say, back to the imagery of this picture, yeah. right? Um, we talked about popcorn. When I was reading this, I was immediately taken back to the end scene of um, Real Genius, where a laser is used to pop popcorn <laughs> in someone's house, right? Yeah. Why aren't you using your talents for good, Steph? I I Who know I need should. popcorn like that. Exactly. Well, <laughs> I I we have big microwave sources. I could just microwave a room full of popcorn. Ooh, I, you know what you need to do? What? If you have a giant microwave, you need to make a giant hot pocket to I test just, the ooh, hypothesis yes. that regardless of scale, the center is always boiling lava hot. It's yeah. always boiling lava hot cuz in the microwave in your microwave oven is a resonant cavity, so you're going to have standing waves set up. So there's going to be natural peaks and troughs in there. So we'd have to have it in a cavity that kind of disperses the microwaves around in a better fashion. Like my belly. <laughs> you need to make a better crisper sleeve, is what you're finding out. I right? mean, that's kind of that's basically what they do. Actually, anecdotally, I just heard on the radio this week, and I don't ask me why. I think I'm the last person who listens to actual <laughs> FM radio. Yeah. Um, but I heard someone talking about uh, anecdotally that it doesn't matter whether you use the crisper sleeve or not. Really? It still comes out crispy because of a new design in Hot Pockets. Don't ask me why I, I heard like, that or why I remember did, this. What did they put inside of it? The reason I remember it because I thought, you know, no way. There's no way you don't need the crisper sleeve. Right. Right. Like, why add it if you don't need it? Why play with my heart like that? We need to get Indiana's own native Hoosier son, Jim Gaffigan, to come on here and talk to us about <laughs> like plasma waves and hot pockets. We need to make this happen. Microwaves and hot pocket. Hey, season four. There you go. Let's do it. Also, Real Genius was filmed at the fusion lab that I used to work at. Nice. There the you opening go. scene. Do they, do they have the do they have the popcorn? <laughs> no, pop- we don't have a hall. They did not have a hallway popcorn. <sighs> That's too bad. Did they have an ice skating rink in the dorm in the dorm hallway? There's no dorms there, but they do make the yeah, predator so. drones. So I feel like there's some. Ooh. Speaking of predator drones and the downfall of democracy, obviously we have a lot of fun on this show, but sometimes a story warrants a little more seriousness. So a recent study from UCAL Berkeley and MIT found some interesting things in the death cage match that we call politics in America. Basically, no individual supported what they called anti-democratic activities, which are things like limiting access to voting or banning rallies or limiting speech in some way. However, they also found that both sides suspected the other of supporting these actions, and to make things worse, when people believed the other side was supporting these actions, they were more likely to support some kind of retaliatory effort. So... Fun, fun times in the United States. But maybe there's some good news, and I think it's good to end this season on this. 
it looks like if the participant was immediately corrected on their supposition that the other side was out to get them, the likelihood of them supporting retaliatory anti-democratic efforts went down significantly. So the approval of subverting democracy fell when you didn't think the other side was out to get you. So let's put our communication enthusiast caps on one more time and ride out on this last opportunity to talk about talking. Well, it'll probably come as no surprise to you that this doesn't surprise me in the slightest because, uh, again, um, decisions are not made with better information. They're made because of the tribal um, affiliations that we have, right? And so the company that we keep has maybe a disproportionately large influence on the way we think. And if we're told that the company that we keep is thinking wrong and that it's not true, it probably isn't that surprising that better information does help us make better decisions. I guess to me, while this is a little bit optimistic, it underscores some of the worst of politics. And that is um, the idea that, you know, good people can do evil things. Not because they want to do evil things, but because they want to prevent themselves from becoming the targets of evil things from the other side, right? So I have a colleague here um, at my institution who has made an argument, a bioethics argument about Darth Vader, which I found to be really compelling. And the idea was that Darth Vader, Anakin didn't set out to become a bad person. He made a series of choices. Each one of those choices uh, related to defending his family that led him down to the dark side. And not any one individual choice was the one that, that made him cross that line, but collectively the body of work and the people that he was talking to influenced him such that he's a bad dude. I think the same thing is probably true on the political spectrum of the US at both extremes, where they point fingers at each other and say, it's the other guy that's the problem, right? It's not surprising that you know, we've had democratic societies elect autocrats, right? It's happened over and over and over again. It's because of things like tribalism. Again, better information doesn't allow us to make better choices. It's who is telling us to make the choice and what choice we should make that influences us more. I'm glad that you're optimistic about this, James. This just further depresses me because I don't <laughs> see a way out of this pattern. I don't see a way out of this pattern. Steffi? What do you think? You're the tiebreaker. Right? I like that the internet lets me connect with a lot of people. That's been amazing. But it also provides people a space to get deeper into their bubbles mm -hmm. or their echo chambers, right? So instead of like going across, like just having lunch with people or having, you know, conversations with people who differing ideas, you kind of become more siloed. I mean... So you see that on the internet. I also see that in academia. People are siloed within their research group, within their research structure, within their field, uh, and not branching out from that. I mean, very different in some sense <laughs> in the political spectrum. I mean, there is politics and science, of course. But anytime you have these structures set up where people are just talking to the same people with the same ideas, it kind of exaggerate some of this i think too right i mean you just made a ringing endorsement for team science right and, yeah. co and hey. collaborative science interdisciplinary science yeah but it's also true about just relative you know communication with our fellow humans right right 
talk to as many different people as possible and you're going to end up a, a better person yep. than if you only talk to the same people or people from the same background over and over and over again. I think this is definitely cause to link to both Gen Ma episodes and the David Goldstein episode of, of this podcast. And I think we can learn a lot from how communication can not bridge the divide, but at least kind of like bring the tension down to the place where communication can exist. You know, you never, you never gonna be guaranteed to change anyone's mind. That's just like the, uh, the utopia thought behind all of this. But I feel like with the strategies that they talked about where you're not like, prejudging and you're not being combative you can at least bring the group to a place where some kind of communication can take place because right now it's just kind of like screaming at the wall i think trying to come into conversations thinking that the person has good intentions behind what they're saying this kind of goes back to what jason was saying earlier starting from that standpoint completely changes how you enter a conversation um, and I wish more people would do this instead of the us versus them. It's trying to genuinely understand people and understand they're probably not being malicious. I'm just going to make that assumption. So coming from a good place. Right. I have a colleague here, um, a close colleague who always says that one should enter every conversation willing to be changed by that conversation. Yeah. Otherwise, sure. it's not a genuine interaction and it's not probably worth your time because you're not going to co-create any meaning from that communication. Yeah. I really love the spaces where I work with other scientists from dramatically, vastly different fields. I get Mm. so much more insight on what they're doing, how to approach science, different ways of thinking that I can apply to my field too. It's very like opens my mind. I love it. I wish there were more opportunities to do that because a lot of my time is spent on what I'm funded to do or teach man if there are other people out there i wish there was just like a science communication podcast that they could come on and like talk to people from different backgrounds about a common subject man that would be like a really good series of special episodes for season four wouldn't it multidisciplinary looks at a general topic there you go and have it be recorded with a with a backing track and maybe some some audio effects. Somebody should do that. As long as there's a laugh track in there, I'm in. Oh, there's definitely gonna be a laugh track and some some yakety sacks. I just want laser background noise. I don't know why. I think we probably do that too, right? Put your uh, put your Sony your Sony Talkboy next to the laser next time you turn it on, and we'll just put that cassette into Apple. I don't know. I don't think it makes noise. If it does. Probably shouldn't. You're the one. You're the one that brought up lasers. I'm talking right. about space lasers that are fake, because there's no sound in right. space. Okay. We're uh, mm. we're talking about um, Steffi Pew Pew Deem here. Yeah, right? exactly. Mean, she wants some <laughs> pew pews. <laughs> made it to the end of season three thank you all so much for listening it has been a lot of fun seeing where this podcast was going when i started this podcast just about three years ago it was real different and like not very good but then season three came about and 
no one can say we didn't start trying. So Jason and Steffi and Chris, if you're listening, and bacon cookies, like, get those cookies out of the oven. They're probably burning, Chris. Come on. Send them here, Chris. Jeez. I want some cookies. But Jason and Steffi, thank you so much for being on this show. I've had a lot of fun. It's been so much fun. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. This is the highlight of my week. Same. And it probably sounds like we're going to start saying it's all over but the crying and everything. But don't worry. Season four will be here before you know it. And don't think we're going to leave you without some summer sci-com. We have some previously unreleased recordings, remastered episodes from seasons one and two, and smaller bite-sized versions of the science news you've all come to tolerate. So make sure you follow us on social media. If you want to follow me, I'm at James underscore read three. Steffi, where can they find you? You can find me at Twitter at Steffi Deem. Also Instagram at Starshipping. Jason, where can everybody find you? Find me on Twitter at OrganJM. Follow the show at Pod and visit our home on the web, Cynite.com, for all of our social media accounts, past episodes, the stories we talked about, the people we talked to, and our merch. There's a lot to see. You can see it all at Cynite.com. We will be back soon with some good old-fashioned summer SciCom, but until then... Have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. After nearly two years and 42 episodes, we're bringing season three to a close. But wait, 42? Not before... This is 42. This is our Jackie Robinson isn't, episode. Isn't today like the, the 42 day? Man. Why are Synchronicity, words... right? Wait, are you, you talk... Is this, is this, is this uh, a Hitchhiker's Guide? Yeah. Isn't it today? Okay. Maybe. I don't know. It's been a while since I read that book. All I remember is Beware the Panther. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. We're going to keep that in. That's the stinger. All right. So <coughs> episode 42 already derailed. Yep. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> nice.